if you don't mind, I would like to just read a little bit from, yeah, from yeah. your book because there's yeah. this lovely little paragraph at the beginning of your conclusion in chapter seven. Mm-hmm. You write, when the triumph of democracy was announced after the end of the Cold War, political theorists did not fully consider how the Cold War might have transformed democracy itself. It was not just those who assumed that democracy as witnessed in the late 20th century represented a culmination of the modern democratic ideal. Critics acutely aware of democracy's deficiencies at the turn of the new century attributed them primarily to neoliberalism's rise since the 1980s. Neoliberalism's challenge to democracy is undoubtedly a crucial concern, but we cannot fully understand the current crisis of democracy and the ascendance of neoliberalism without taking into account what happened to democracy in the middle of the 20th century, or so I have argued in this book. And this book is, readers, The Eclipse of the Demos, uh, The Cold War and the Crisis of Democracy Before Neoliberalism, written by Kyung Min Sun, our guest for today. And the question I had is, how did you come to write this book? And I'm guessing that as you answer that question, we'll get a general thrust of what the book is about, because I think (laughs) that quote sort of sketches your project there. Thank you. I mean, it's hard to explain. You know, sometimes I feel like I am stumbled on the book rather than, you know, kind of deliberately planning to write this particular book. So it took me a a very long time to write this book. It began uh, its life as my dissertation in my grad school. And I think I began, you know, with this nagging concern that I had about the state of democracy, you know, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. That's when I kind of began to seriously think about, you know, what democracy is, what it should be. And I kind of, you know, uh, walked down the genealogical uh, road, I think. And, you know, I try to figure out where all these problems that I'm seeing uh, were coming from. And, you know, I traced it back and back and back and ended up in the post-war period. So I think it kind of happened to me in a way, right? But I did think that one of the uh, motivations behind the book is that the current debate about the so-called crisis of democracy tends to be conceived a little bit too narrowly. So a few people talk about, oh, it's the this gap between what the public want and what the institutions uh, were doing in response to their demands. Some people talk about, oh, we are entering this new age of democracy. So it's not, you know, this declining trust or turnout. It's not a bad thing. You know, we are just entering a new age of participatory, more direct democracy. And I thought that conceptually that was a little too narrow. And another body of literature that I engaged with was this critic of neoliberalism. So a number of critics argued that neoliberalism, you know, undermined democracy in many ways. And I'm very sympathetic to that critic. But I also thought that focusing too exclusively on neoliberalism comes with its own problems. So neoliberalism in those critics, right? Critics try to figure out the ways in which neoliberalism kind of undermines democracy. You know, it described neoliberalism as this giant assault mm-hmm. on democracy, and in doing so, creates this very scary image of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is something almost impossible to challenge, right? This is sort it, of the Wendy Brown school. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, there's a lot. You know, Wendy Brown. I admire that this. book. I oh, love yeah, Undoing absolutely, the Demos. Absolutely. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I felt like, you know, neoliberalism, you know, is not like, you know, such an ironclad monolith, right? You know, for me, neoliberalism is like a loose collection of different strands of social forces and and ideologies. And, you know, and we got to find out a way to challenge it, not not in one single blow, I guess, but, you know, with kind of a multi-pronged approach and in prevailing critics of neoliberalism, I think that concern kind of dropped out a little bit. And I think at the same time, we should be very honest and aware of the limitations of democracy itself, right? So, you know, there's this tendency, again, among the critics of neoliberalism and and those who are worried about the state of democracy, that all the responsibility lies with neoliberalism. Democracy is just fine, right? And I think that the tendency 
uh, is also there with the critics of populism today, right? They point their finger at populism as kind of the exclusive source of crisis. And then, you know, they go over the limitations of, of democracy a little too quickly, in my view. Right? So I wanted to also understand, hey, you know, uh, were there like weaknesses in democracy itself that we should be thinking more about? Yeah, it's interesting that you you bring up the fear of populism now. One of the things that resonated while I was reading your book was the panic around populism, let's yeah. say. You know, I think for me, the article that really showcased that was, you know, Trump won 2016 with the Electoral College. And still, I think it was the Atlantic or somewhere put out a piece that said, "Is um, uh, do we have too much democracy? Yeah. And I was like, that's wild because he lost the popular vote. <laughs> <laughs> But there was a, in the post-war, a motivating fear of the masses that starts to assault or undermine a conception of what we might otherwise call the public. And so I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through a little bit how that happens. So, I mean, the immediate concern, so, you know, the concern about the masses began with the French Revolution, of course, right? So I talk about, you know, uh, Gustave Le Bon's very influential tract. It's not even like a book or scholarly book. It's like a little tract, but it became hugely influential. But it is really interesting that, so a couple of contextual things about Le Bon's analysis of mass crowd psychology is that it is based heavily on his speculative observations about the, uh, the Paris Commune. And so there's that connection. So, and what is also interesting is that even though this book, you know, almost became almost like a canon in the post-World War II period, when it first came out, so it came out in the late 19th century and uh, was introduced to the American intellectual world in the, in the early 20th century. And many prominent psychologists and public intellectuals at the time were very critical of Le Bon's analysis of crowd psychology and its implications for democracy, right? And, you know, I talked a little bit about Dewey, but Dewey was not the only one who responded very critically to Le Bon. And their major concern at the time was that separating out mass psychology as if it is, has life of its own completely ignores uh, the impact of institutions and culture. Right. You know, what we think of, you know, people's psychology, their psychological disposition, it's not like they're hardwired in that way. Right. It is a product of how we organize our institutions. Right. And that insight kind of, you know, is completely out of sight when you take the Lubonian road. And what is really striking is that, you know, this, this all happened in the 19, 1910, 1920, and so on and so forth. And when you read books in 1950s and 60s, you know, this insight is really, I mean, nowhere to be found, actually. You know, people are completely overtaken by this. Oh, I mean, this is a real insight about how the masses think, you know, many people in the 50s and 60s believed. And it was also the time that, you know, many social scientists wanted to kind of codify these, you know, uh, historical narratives and insights into measurable units. That's when this, you know, data collection and so on and so forth uh, began to happen in earnest. And once you do that, right, you know, once these uh, elements of psychology and social trends are uh, codified into concepts and measurable units, this intellectual debate stops there, basically. So these biases against the masses then, you know, became like the fundamental part of democratic discourse. And then, you know, it gets reproduced as facts, no longer as arguments. So, you know, there's that, you know, kind of weird blurring of lines there between facts and uh, knowledge. Seems to me like by the time we get into the 50s and the 60s, the fear of totalitarianism looms large. Yeah. And we also get an influx of emigres who have fled various regimes too, that come to take their own parts in various foundations. Uh, Rand Corp would be a great example mm -hmm. of, especially like the tabulation cult, you know, but they have their own fears about the masses and democracies as do American cold warriors writ large. So it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what I see happening is that when they're thinking about democracy, 
in the back of their minds, there's a big picture of Joseph Stalin. Right. And that's what they're worried about in terms of mass psychology and things like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, totalitarianism is certainly the most immediate, you know, factor behind this rising fear of the masses in the 50s and 60s. But totalitarianism, the concept itself was a discourse, right? So it it became associated with the Soviet Union, Stalin especially, right? But when it first began to get traction, it you know was associated exclusively with Nazism actually, right? So, and then, you know, in the, in, in the late 1930s and early 40s, when the fight conservative reaction against the New Deal was being, uh, was being intensified, right, that's when, you know, totalitarianism came to encompass not just Nazism, but also Stalinism, right? So there's that interesting mix with anti-Nazism and anti-communism there. So, and it, of course, became uh, one of the mainstays of public public discourse in the 1950s here in the United States. Especially because you had figures like Father Conklin and Huey Long in the 30s who were really in contention with FDR for who was going to resolve this crisis. It's Mm. hard to remember now, though we might get a chance to experience it ourselves in the next 10 years, that it lasted a decade, that the unemployment was so low, that this was a serious global crisis that turned politics internationally into something more protean than it had been, especially right off the heels of World War I, which absolutely destroyed, especially in the West, uh, you know, where it takes place, um, any concept of the old world. Yeah. You know, and so people are sort of grasping at straws for what to do. And the right, the Republicans were basically decimated, you know, after Hoover's uh, defeat. But then beginning in the 1930s, they began to claw back. And, you know, this notion of the concept of totalitarianism was really, you know, the fuel uh, of their comeback, really, right? They accused FDR of taking the United States in the direction of totalitarianism. You know, there were many books written comparing, Hoover uh, actually wrote one, comparing FDR's New Deal with Nazism and Stalinism. So they're all the same, right? Bureaucratic kind of macro management of the economy, you know, fascism, Nazism, Stalinism, they're all variants of the same thing. And of course, you know, that's the kind of argument that people like Hayek made very influential. Yeah, that's what the road to serfdom is really about. Hayek himself is remarkably unconcerned about the Cold War because to him, it seems to be like a debate over, it's like Keynesian versus communism, which is basically the same thing to him at some level. You know, there's like too much planning there. You know, one thing that I I was thinking about, so democracy gets reconceived in this milieu is one of the Mm -hmm. things you walk through. And it ends up in the realm of instrumental democracy. To me, this was both a concept I could understand, but a difficult one in that it still feels like the air we breathe. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could rearticulate what it is to bring us into right. how people negotiated these difficulties as they saw them. So there with the concept of instrumental democracy, I try to have this dialogue with prevailing scholarship of post-World War II democratic theory, you know, what really is the nature of post-war democratic theory. Many scholars have debated its nature. So there are a number of influential kind of characterizations, like it's like elitist democracy, that's probably one of the most popular and, and you know, widely known characterizations of post-war democracy. So it doesn't give enough room for ordinary citizens to participate in politics, and it focuses solely on elections and representation, elites, and so on and so forth, right? And there are related characterizations along those lines. And, you know, I I definitely agree uh, to a great extent with those critics, uh, but at the same time, I think it does not fully capture what I think is the most problematic aspect of post-war democratic theory, which is, you know, its reduction of democracy into an instrument for the advancement of private individuals' interest, right? And for me, you know, democracy, and, you know, this is how many people before the Cold War period have understood democracy. Democracy was not understood primarily as an instrument for individuals. It was a public institution, a way of organizing society, 
in a very particular way. If you compare democracy to other political systems, I think this, this becomes uh, a little bit clear, right? Monarchy, aristocracy, if you think about other political systems, they too are ways of organizing society and especially power in a particular way. Monarchy gives power to one man, aristocracy gives power to a group of people, democracy gives power to the people, meaning you know, to all citizens. So the essence of democracy, if you understand democracy in this way, is equal power, basically, right? So it, it, it is premised on political equality. And the only way to, to achieve political equality in the modern world is to organize society around the common good. Because ordinary citizens without access to wealth or you know, uh, without connections and so on and so forth, the only way they can achieve relatively equal political standing is to organize themselves, right? And then make sure that certain basic things are guaranteed to all citizens so that they can participate in political decision-making without existential anxiety about their survival or whatever. You know, the, the minimum line for political independence and autonomy, that's really essential to, to democracy, right? But these concerns you know, are kind of, you know, not forgotten, but, but you know, more like bracketed in post-war democratic theory. It is kind of assumed, right? The economy has its own way to produce all these nice things, even though distribution is unequal, even though, you know, richer people are getting richer much, much more quickly, doesn't really matter because as long as we grow fast enough, as long as we produce these, you know, uh, uh, consumer goods fast enough, it will eventually trickle down to every single one. This whole question of the common good and political equality took a backseat, if you will, in, in the post-war period, right? So I think that's one of the important backgrounds. It feels impossible to remember how exceptional that growth period was. Yeah. And then to understand how it sidelines or conveniently postpones certain difficult questions about how American society is going to be organized. And of course, we've talked about the pressures of the Cold War and how that contours the political thinking as well. I mean, that deep division between the economic and the political is interesting because at this moment too, we also sort of start to forego political economy as a way to understand the shape of American society and opt for more cultural explanations mm. of, you know, why do certain immigrants succeed or whatever? This has its own body of literature that then informs the Moynihan report and other things as we go through that creates, you know, as we were sort of talking earlier before we started it in earnest, the interest group problem, which mm forecloses on the possibility of a public. And that to me, while I was reading your book, I felt how devastating that was because it feels now like we have, I mean, I don't even know how to phrase a question around this because it feels now like we have different groups that compete for oligarchy status, mm -hmm. whether or not that's actually going to be possible mm -hmm. for them, you know, but that's how we conceive of politics. Definitely. And because, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, politics is about making a compromise, right? It's about, you know, because people have different interests, viewpoints, worldviews, right? And they all come to politics from different angles and so on and so forth. So, you know, the best way to go about this is to find the middle ground. Middle ground is a very popular term. But if you really think about how this so-called middle ground or center is formed, right, it is not just a natural you know, manifestation of how the average American, you know, thinks about the state of affairs, right? It is basically manufactured, right? It's a, it's a byproduct of powerful voices, basically, you know, representation, you know, not just formal representation, but representation of what is the right thing to do, basically, in politics, right? You know, it does not really represent the, the views and opinions of average, average Americans basically, right? So it's the way that politics, a democratic politics is framed today is so powerfully constrained and shaped by a very small number of groups, actually, and, and individuals. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this is not a time 
it's not very easy to be hopeful these days, right? You know, because the obstacles, right, seem so, so almost in, insurmountable, right? So high for ordinary uh, citizens. One of the interesting things I think in what we're talking about for me was coming into um, an understanding of like some theories about what corporatism represented in the 20th century, mm-hmm. because I think like they would say in ideal corporatism, you have maybe a handful of well-defined groups in a society. Each It's not easy to move between groups, but each has its own specific access to the state so that the state provides for each group. So like, tr- you know, traditional medieval corporatism, you have artisans, farmers, the clergy, and so on. Each of those groups has some form of representation with the state mm-hmm. so that they can live supposedly harmoniously. And I think one of the most interesting things to think about for me lately was this idea that we have sort of a half corporatist setup, if you think about it in that way, in the U.S., where a lot of people have direct access to the state. They have lobbies, you know, in some sense, or they have personal relationships with the people who govern. Mm -hmm. And this affords them a non-democratic direct access to the state. And with that will come the state will address their concerns. They'll have redress for things that they feel like should happen. They can at least have opportunities for these things. So there are groups who get this sort of corporatist relationship, but then a large part of us, we're in the democratic body, but the democratic body, like we've been talking about, is entirely, you know, it's just, it's procedural. We pick from a handful of people who are in this, in this group where they, they have personal relationships and direct access and we're we're almost relegated to to like a different sector and a different relationship and i think that has been really interesting to think about for me because it it almost seems to describe well like actual relationships versus the theoretical ones that we're trained as americans at least to think in so much like oh we're all equal under the law but then you see like actual inequalities and it's hard to explain them otherwise yeah, definitely. You know, it is in some ways mind boggling that, you know, we call our system democracy and you look around and there's just literally so little room for just, you know, citizens to really do anything, right? So in one of the later chapters, I talk a little bit about Hannah Rent and her critic of instrumental democracy. And, you know, she extends her critic of instrumental democracy to, you know, she's, she can be very disparaging about representative democracy. So she says this so-called representative democracy, right? It's not really, you know, democracy or political in any actual sense, right? The very notion that, you know, citizens' interests can be represented by somebody else, that very notion says that, you know, citizens have nothing to contribute to public debate, the kind of direction that the country should be taking. And, and again, early progressives in the early 20th century had a similar concern. John Dewey, again, when he advocated participatory democracy, he was hotly debated, but his underlying motivation is that we as a society should have institutional space, right? Not just random space that citizens really have to struggle to, to carve out for themselves, but institutional space where ordinary citizens should be charged with something, right? In terms of managing, you know, and at least discussing their collective affairs, the things that actually affect their lives. And you know, there's just so little room uh, for that kind of political experience in our society. And I briefly talk about Manang, Bernard Manang's very influential book on representative democracy. And, you know, uh, it's a great book and he contrasts Greek direct democracy and modern representative democracy. And, you know, when I teach direct democracy, Greek democracy to students, you know, one of the usual answers, uh, responses that I get is, oh, it's not going to happen, you know, in a country of 300 million people. Right? You know, how can you possibly gather all that people in one space? But what Manang shows in his study of Greek democracy is that what actually what defined Greek democracy was not this giant spectacle where all the citizens gathered together, you know, to talk about these things. Actually, the, the essence of direct democracy was the principle of rotation. 
everyone, every citizen is guaranteed of mathematical chance, mathematically guaranteed chance of serving in public office if he, in this case, really he, because women were excluded, he wants to serve in public administration. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's that we've talked on the podcast before about the difference in Athens between uh, Parisia, which liberal Democrat would call license, and um, Isagoria, which mm-hmm. is your ability to actually stand before the agora mm-hmm. and represent your own beliefs to them and sway them, which is tied to, again, sort of the semi-lot democratic system that the Athenians cooked up. I mean, one of the ways I've been thinking, and this is in part brought about by your book, of what happens after World War II is that I call it the platonic shift. Mm-hmm. And it is striking to me that by the time you get to the end of the 20th century, America has taken some of Plato's anti-democratic assumptions from the Republic and instantiated them in mm-hmm. some form. So meritocracy mm-hmm. would be one, especially through an education system mm-hmm. to train up a civil society mm-hmm. that can sort of depolitically. Uh, manage what's happening. And another one would be, I mean, Walter Lippmann is sort of the avatar for this sort of thinking that I think Mm -hmm. exists today in people like, what's his name? Cass Sustine, who Mm -hmm. worked for the Obama administration. He writes that book, Nudge, where it's the difference between fact and opinion, Mm -hmm. fact being the more crucial one. And really you just need the managers and arbiters of facts to decide Mm -hmm. what happens. I mean, that to me just sounds like a post-enlightenment philosopher king. So I think that uh, shifting of the ground of what's even understood as a democracy has really changed. And we have called, I think I said this in my first email to you, our concerns about this sort of civic atrophy Mm. that I felt was tied very much to your idea of democratic attunement, which is not Mm -hmm. a phrase I'd heard before. Mm. So I was wondering if you could share with us how you see that idea for our listeners. Right. Right. So One conceptual space that I wanted to open up a little bit in the book was this notion of democratic responsiveness or attunement, right? So I conceptualize that as a particular kind of responsiveness to public claims. There are all kinds of competing public claims here, but what matters is that the public responds to public claims that appeal to the notions of the common good and political equality, right? Some public claims are made in favor of certain groups, right? We are familiar with this, right? In lobbyists and so on and so forth, they represent a particular group. But then there are other public claims, right, that, you know, make arguments. They're always contestable, right? All public claims are debatable and contestable. But what matters is that what those claims are about. And I think without that vigilant and engaged public, democracy becomes really susceptible to the pressures of minorities because, you know, again, minorities, they are focused. I mean, they know what they want and they have resources at their disposal, right? So, you know, unless they have to go through the public who can make judgment about, you know, whether this particular demand is is the right one from the perspective of democracy, then, you know, they're pretty much getting free reign here. So that's that kind of responsiveness, I think, is under-examined by democratic theorists because, you know, democratic theorists tend to be divided between the people who think a lot about, you know, how, how can we, you know, enhance the legitimacy of our representative institutions, right? How can we make it more acceptable to people, responsive to people? And then on the other side, people, you know, some scholars talk about, oh, how can we include more people. There are so many marginalized, excluded people, right? So how can we include them? What is missing, I think, in that debate is that under what conditions these marginalized people are included? In in other words, you know, what's the the terms of inclusion, right? Inclusion, I think, while important, is not enough. So under what terms they're included as equal citizens, you know, quote unquote, equal citizens. So, you know, that's something, you know, I I think a lot. And this is an academic book and I use, you know, some of the more technical terms too, but in broad ways, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you can think about the problem that I talk about as political culture in a very broad sense, right? The kind of prevailing ways of thinking about, even feeling about some of the public affairs. And, you know, I think we should 
think about those ways of thinking and feeling not as random or purely private ones, but you know, socially produced and circulated and compete for people's consumption, again, quote unquote, right? People come to embody, come to accept, adopt these ways of thinking and feeling. And in that way, I think that prevalent public culture or common sense, whatever you want to call it, you know, is subject to change. One of the things I wondered when you were talking earlier was you were saying like, well, this idea of mass psychology, it's really, it's going to be societally influenced how people are and think, but it almost felt as though this idea could serve as a justification for pushing us further into a certain kind of society, which created a mass psychology, which only further reinforced the need to go further in this direction, so Mm -hmm. to speak. It became a a self-reinforcing loop of this is how the people are. Because one of the things Emin and I have talked about for a long time was the way in which Athens really demonstrated that I think part of democracy, at least in that sense, was something Emmett called like an institutional literacy, where if everyone has a mathematical chance to be called upon to actually have to take part in governance, then that means that everybody has to be somewhat capable of that. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you're saying, I think if you have at least that condition, you you can have a public because everybody's kind of brought together around the same table. And the same thing is at least potentially required of all of them. And they're all at least potentially taking a direct part in their own self-management. And Mm -hmm. so when something comes up, when an issue comes up, their institutions and their society have crafted their public consciousness Mm -hmm. in a way. But it seems like, you know, one of the things we talk about is Christopher Lash brings up the idea of third places where people can come together, like the town square or the Mm -hmm. tavern or whatever. Those things are really gone there's not really any place that I can go physically be and meet people in my community and like try and talk to them. And I think when you do go there and you have like sort of broad sociality, it creates a sense in your head, like your worldview has changed because you now have an understanding at least of a local public and the views and persuasions, which uh, hold sway in it. But with that kind of being erased, it seems like to me, the broad idea today is that the internet to some Mm -hmm. extent has taken the place of that Mm -hmm. that really feels at least to me like extremely under theorized and perhaps it transfers too much of our former understanding of the town square onto the internet where it might not be appropriate to understand it that way right right no, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. And, you know, I feel like I'm not very qualified to talk about the internet because I'm shamefully <laughs> very unadvanced with uh, the new technology, even though I, I'm using Zoom to teach my classes these well, days. Well, we've all been constri- conscripted into the Zoom universe exactly. this year. Exactly. But I mean, it's an interesting point. And, you know, a lot of factors I think are at play here. You know, you talk about these, you know, civic spaces or just public spaces where we don't even have to engage with each, each other in any explicit way around like policy questions or something like that, but just the, you know, having some sort of common experiences, right? So, for example, in the post-war period, the historian Liz Cohen talks about the building of shopping malls, right? And these public spaces are basically raised and, you know, these developers come in, they create these giant shopping malls. And, you know, what is interesting about the shopping malls is that private property, right? It's not public parks. In other words, you cannot just go there and picketing or, you know, say stuff. Yeah. It's in, the consumer's republic, as she calls e- it. Ex- exactly, right? So you can, I mean, you can basically escort it out of those places because, you know, it inconveniences, you know, other potential customers, right? So it then creates another kind of dynamic consumer activism and so on and so forth. But then this fundamental, almost architectural change, right? The change of space plays a role there. And, you know, people like Michael Sandel is going to talk about these skyboxes in stadiums, right? You know, how baseball tickets become, you know, uh, unaffordable basically, right? This regimentation of culture, this creation of these bubbles, right? You can think about different suburbs, right? Zip code, you know, basically these days mean different lives 
right? I mean, it's not just a difference of where you live, it's the kind of life that you lead as an individual. So you never get to experience how, to, how other people, you don't even know how it looks like, right? Other people's lives, in other words, right? So there's that and internet is a new thing again, right? And not clear that still, I think there's an ongoing debate, you know, between optimists and pessimists, right? About the po democratic possibilities of the internet, but yeah, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll stop there because I don't feel like I'm qualified. To yeah, come that's to totally that. fair. I mean, what you were saying reminds me when you brought up the baseball tickets and things like that, it reminds me of Don DeLillo's novel, Underworld, uh, yeah. which traces the, it opens with the famous Giants-Dodgers game. And in some ways, it's about how people's lives are shaped by this arc of quote unquote American progress up until the 1990s and the end of the mm -hmm. Cold War and it creating all of these distortions and things you'd never expect and things that there's this creeping sense of a loss of meaning and understanding of where the self is in relation to society in that book. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading your chapter on Hayek, mm -hmm. one of the things that I thought about was the difference between uh, contract and compliance. So in the Rousseauian sense of a social contract where it's like, okay, this is how we're going to enter into this society together. And then compliance where it seems to be like, uh, you have no option but to submit to whatever these rules are. I mean, the joke that we always tell is Zizek's joke about the difference between an authoritarian father and a postmodern one, where the authoritarian one says, we're going to grandma's house, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and you can have like internal resistance to that and be like, well, I hate this, but like, okay. Whereas the postmodern father is just like, now you know how sad it makes your grandmother when <laughs> you can't come over. And so not only do you, of course, have to go, but you have to, an inner part of you has to succumb. Mm -hmm. There's an extra level of coercion that happens there that mm -hmm. forecloses on any opportunity of resistance or dissension. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is the sense I got from your reading of Hayek. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, and I think there is, there are elements of coercion in Hayek too, right? So in other words, he wants to enlist the state. So his neoliberalism, his argument about, you know, in favor of the free market is not an argument about retreating, the state retreating from the market simply. You know, he's very acutely aware of the kind of resistance that the free market project is going to incite from the people. And he wants to enlist the state in kind of tamping down people's resistance and you know, basically keeping them in line, right? But I think the major dynamic of neoliberalism, I think you know, you're absolutely right about, it's really also about attracting and enticing people. This free market, you know, Hayek, thinks about the free market as a, a, a system of signals or these bits of information, right? So every time you act in a market, the market will send you a signal. And the signals are not just neutral signals that you, you respond to. Those are enticing signals. If you look around and look at all the things that clamor for your attention, they're so, everything is so slick. You know what I mean? And there's a pleasure when you buy things right? When you use those things, it's not just practical. It does not simply serve practical purposes, but it, it also kind of satisfies, you know, something in you, right? And I think, and, and all these messages about success, you know, being equated with, you know, monetary value, your net worth or whatever. You know, yeah, we call it, we call it entrepreneur brain here, where there's a <laughs> collapse between the self and your business, right? Where you really see yourself. It's the Jay-Z line. I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. And, you know, in, in some ways, there's something perverse about that, right? You know, you, you find satisfaction, not just from the things that you can actually do, but from the number that you associate yourself with, you identify yourself with, right? You, you don't really do anything with a million dollars in your bank account, but you just, you know, feel good about looking at it. You know what I mean? So, but you know, that's how ne neoliberalism works in part, I think. It's not just about forcing people to follow you know, market rules or the dictates of the free market. It's also about, you know, giving individuals these little rewards, right? And also by creating, you know, these new aspirations and desires in them. You know, you feel like you have to update your phone or whatever every year, every two years, 
not on your own, but because you know those messages are are fed to you basically, right? So yeah, yeah. To me, I don't know if you've seen Astra Taylor's documentary um, on democracy that came out, but I highly recommend it because she okay. interviews all sorts of people, um, including Wendy Brown um, oh, okay. and Cornell West, but also just people on the street. Like, there's one. Barber, who's an ex-con that read like Rousseau and Machiavelli when he was in prison. And he has all sorts of interesting things to say about American life. But she also goes to a Trump rally and she's interviewing people like very, I would say, like not judgmentally. She's curious about what they have to say about democracy. Mm -hmm. And one woman just frankly says, I don't care about democracy. I care about the American dream. Mm. And I was Mm. like, that's it right there. Somebody in the 30s would be like, what does that even mean? How could those be different? Like, don't you understand we're in a global conflict right now where democracy is this thing we have to figure out how to steward? And I think that's changed. And part of it has to do with that shift in subjectivity that you're talking about. So if I'm understanding you right now and reading you correctly, those individual rewards, that Procrustean bed of the market starts to disintegrate democratic subjectivity over time or attunement, as you would Mm -hmm. call it. So I think of democracy as a principle of social organization, right? And I think the free market is another one. Bureaucracy is another one. So there are competing principles, right? Different ways of organizing social relations. And each principle requires people to respond to signals that it sends out, right? So neoliberalism needs people respond primarily to money signals, or the allures of objects or whatever. Democracy, I think, requires its subjects, its people to respond primarily to the claims about political equality and the common good. And and they're in competition in in many ways, right? And in other words, the more the market principle uh, becomes prevalent, the less powerful, the less influential the democratic principle becomes. So that's how I kind of broadly understand this problem. And you're right about, you know, that interesting reconceptualization of the American dream, right? So I uh, talk about the two speeches that, you know, FDR gave and Harry Truman gave, you know, in a matter of like five years or so, right? So, you know, FDR in the early 40s, you know, uh, addressed the nation talking about four freedoms as the essence of, you know, the American, America, but American dream, you can think about that in that way too. So, you know, freedom of worship and speech is there, right? And he also talks about freedom from want and from fear, and, you know, that's a couple concept for him, right? In order to, you know, uh, uh, free of fear, you have to be free from want. And then a few years later, Truman gave another speech on freedom, again, you know, describing uh, what America is all about. And he keeps the first two, freedom of worship and speech, and then he switches freedom, of, uh, freedom from want and fear with freedom of enterprise, And then he goes on to say, hey, actually, freedom of enterprise is a precondition for these first two things, freedom of speech and freedom of worship. Only when there's a free market, only when citizens act as buyers and sellers, and this is a direct quote from Truman's 46 speech, when citizens act as buyers buyers and sellers, and when we decide public affairs through the working of those buying and selling activities, can we claim to be a free country? That was a really remarkable transformation in a matter of a few years. And you cannot really understand that kind of, you know, shift without understanding the immense pressure that the Cold War exerted on the nation. Right. It seems easier to say in after, you know, after the Ribbentrop Pact gets broken and things like that in the late 30s when the USSR becomes our allies. And when Roosevelt, I mean, all of these guys, everybody is looking like, it's like a long line of dudes looking over each other's shoulders for a final exam, trying to figure out how to pull themselves out of the depression of the thirties. You know, Karen Klaus Patel has that great global history of the new deal where he talks about that. Um, And so these people were borrowing ideas from each other because nobody had like proof positive of what the idea, these ideologies were going to be yet. And so because of that uh, alliance and because of the crisis at hand, Roosevelt can feel secure and putting forward this idea. But as right. you say, once that moment ends and we're back to where we were at the beginning of 1917, when we immediately deployed troops to Russia. 
<laughs> that changes. It, you can't get away with that in the same way anymore. Right. One of the really interesting things that I came across in the last few months was Daniel Bessner's book about Hans Speyer, uh, The Rise of the Defense Intellectual. Uh-huh. And he talks about how Speyer and maybe many of his compatriots who are, we'll call them like somehow professional intellectual scientists, and they come over from Weimar, Germany, uh, they're emigres, and many of them are committed leftists or members of socialist communist organizations at that time. And they seem to witness the Nazi party taking over Germany with a kind of like we were talking about this horror of mass psychology in a way. Mm. Um, And it seems to shake them a bit, but also he points out that there is even in people kind of opposed to Carl Schmitt's thinking, a definite Mm. effect of Carl Schmitt's thinking on the way that they're going to later think about the cold war. And I think it's interesting that he focuses on Spire because it gives you a look rather than at broad social trends at one person's actual psychology and the way in which they personally justify completely abandoning ideals they formally held not that long ago Mm. in a kind of way where you get this construction of democracy must be saved. We are in a zero sum conflict against uh, later, you know, Stalinism and communism and democracy is also weak and feckless. So Mm -hmm. in order to save democracy, we have to change democracy. And I think the way he puts it is kind of like they didn't really think about what was supposed to happen after the state of emergency ended. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just sort of like, oh, it'll go back to like being good once we finish this war. But while we're in this war, we have to do anything we can to make sure that we are not overcome by like the forces of global communism. Mm -hmm. And it was... It was just interesting to me, I think, because we were talking about this move away from all these understandings of democracy that were at least a part of the debate up until we could say the 1910s or the 1920s. And people who supposedly could have embodied that tradition, something about the way the conflict was set up, it just completely erases any commitment to that stuff that they could have had. And they are sort of imbued with the belief that you can't you can't both believe in democracy and save it. You almost have to pick one or the other, mm-hmm. which, you know, like from our vantage point, that doesn't make any sense, mm-hmm. but it seemed to be like it, very animating at the time. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, for, I think this is, uh, this is the case to a certain extent, even today, but especially for the intellectuals in the fifties who thought about the fate of democracy the traumatic experience of the Weimar Republic was a really a crucial one. And again, you talked about Carl Schmitt and his analysis of the weaknesses of the Weimar Republic really loomed large, right? And we forget about what kind of debate that Schmitt was engaged in, you know, when he talked about, because, you know, later on only Schmitt was remembered and everyone else in the debate was kind of forgotten, right? And I recently wrote a, a paper about this debate, but, you know, actually, oh, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Please send us that paper. <laughs> I am fascinated in the Schmidt problem. So, oh yeah, okay. I would love to read it. Yeah. Oh okay. Yeah, I'll I'll make sure. So you know, it's it's under review, so I can't really you know say too much about it. But, okay. Okay. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, but what I was gonna, what I was going to say was that so Schmidt was engaged in this debate in the early 20th century. So we only remember his work, you know, the crisis of parliamentary democracy in in the 1920s and then in the late 1920s and early 30s. But he was in that debate, you know, has been in the debate for a long time. And there were other intellectuals like social democrats, especially because social, you know, democrats were the leaders of the Weimar Republic at the time. And they basically vied with each other with two different understandings of democracy, right? Schmidt thought about democracy as a system premised on homogeneity, the identity of ruler and ruled, right? That was his definition. And many people today try to understand democracy or understand democracy along those lines, forgetting that there was an alternative understanding of democracy very much alive at the time and promoted by social democratic intellectuals which was premised on political equality. So democracy was not about achieving this supposed identity between the ruler and and the ruled. It's about enhancing political equality. If you think about the history of democracy up until that time, early 20th century, 
it was really about advancing political equality. The, the whole 19th century was about the inclusion of the workers basically and the poor, right? And it, it was achieved to a great extent in the early 20th century with the establishment of the Weimar Republic, right? And you know, in, in a way, I think it is ironic that Schmidt emerged as like a victor in, in the sense that he's the one you know, more prominently remembered and this whole discourse about democracy as political equality is kind of forgotten in the current debate, I think is very ironic. And some of the people who talk about populism these days draw very heavily, not just liberal critics of populism, but these yeah. radical advocates of populism too. Chantal Mouffe, yeah. Chantal Mouffe, right? And even um, uh, Alain de Benoist of the French mm-hmm. New Right. Not that they have a lot politically in common, but they both surprisingly draw from Schmidt. Right. And, you know, they, you know, uh, they endorse their version of populism by relying on Schmidt. And I think that carries a lot of risks because I think, you know, at the, at the very core, Schmidt, his intention, as I said, is to co-opt democracy. He talks about democracy, but he talks about a very particular version of democracy or meaning that he attributes to democracy to ride over basically alternative visions about democracy that were circulating, that were even more influential among the intellectuals at the time, right? So I think, you know, contemporary, I mean, we are kind of, I'm kind of diverging from the uh, topic, but I think, you know, contemporary debates about populism should expand its purview a little bit and really definitely move beyond Schmidt and think about that broader debate that he was only one participant. To me, Schmidt's genius. Um, so I spent a lot of time with him. I wrote my master's essay at St. John's on oh, okay. um, concept of the political and political theology. And I think part of his genius, as you could describe it, is his ability to Trojan horse idiosyncratic understandings in common language. Absolutely. And that is, I think, his sleight of hand, which is frankly, exhilarating and masterful to watch. At the same time, it can make you stomach sick and concerned. <laughs> you know? um, I would say that's sort of the, the power that emanates from, from his work. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about this whole time that we've been talking, Kyungmin, to wrap up is one concept I do value from Chantal Mouffe is her commitment to a type of discursive agonism, mm. which I feel is quite important for having this type of attunement that you describe. And what I see now is instead a type of brittleness in that there is a both an extremity and a surprising fragility to what passes for political discourse. And I don't know how to characterize it other than that, but I feel very deeply that it is a threat to public reason. And that within that, it raises the psychological and emotional stakes in a way that feels like a built-in coercion that forecloses on what I think you value as a type of regard beyond the self for mm-hmm. the demos. Definitely. I, I do acknowledge the important points that move and, and many others make about agonism. And, you know, I'm definitely sympathetic to, because as we talked about earlier, these obstacles to the voicing of ordinary citizens and concerns it seems just just too much at this point. I think this radical demands from below, from the bottom, I think is is really important. The only thing I want to add is that advocates of this radical democracy, you know, Mufian, Laclauian radical democracy tends to draw a very sharp distinction between radical action, kind of grassroots type of political action and institutions, right? They kind of try to besiege and then attack institutions from uh, from the outside. And I think, you know, that contrast or juxtaposition comes with its own risks as well, because I think, you know, I briefly mentioned this in the book, institutions do play an important role, I think. And well, as you say, democracy itself ought to be an institution. Right. It should be institutionalized because, again, radical action is an occasional one, right? You know, the great political theorist uh, Sheldon Wallen even goes so far as to say, you know, uh, democracy is fugitive in the sense that it only appears rarely, 
you know, through the cracks of institutions. So, and, and it's true to a great extent, but for the same reason, it also relies on institutional kind of continuity, you know, this yes. guarantee space for citizens to, you know, experience uh, politics and manage their own affairs on a regular basis, perhaps taking rotation. Yes. So, you know, that's, that's the only thing I would say. And also, you know, those radical action, I think, you know, uh, we should find a way to uh, make a connection and mm-hmm. make sure that those isolated experiences or demands lead to a broader change in public discourse, the parameters of what's appropriate, what's doable, what's, what's imaginable, and so on and so forth, right? So I think, you know, politics is a short-term, short-term game in one sense, but it's also a long-term game, right? It doesn't happen overnight. You know, society's right? time horizon is potentially forever. Exactly. You know, I think that's what uh, sets it apart from other social institutions, be it bureaucracy or the market or what have you. And I think that you're right to say that these radical actions to be meaningful must lead to a type of, whether through expansion or something else, uh, an institutionalization of their, of their own. Otherwise they become a type of moralizing spectacle that is easily co-opted by the forces we already experienced that uh, seem to helm a democracy without democracy. And so I think this is the correct place to end our hours about up. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was wonderful. And we'd love to have you on again at some point, um, perhaps <laughs> for one of these papers under review that you're working on. <laughs> yeah, thank please. Thank you so much for inviting me. And um, yeah, it was a great pleasure to talk to you about the book and about other things. And so thank you. Yeah, great. So listeners, stay safe. I hope you enjoyed your weekly installment of Contemplating Why Nothing Feels Possible. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.